0: Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center, and your host for this episode. Given the plethora of digital entertainment options, it may come as a surprise to learn that in 2019, Americans were twice as likely to visit a library as to go to the movies. And as disconnected as we are from one another... Millions of Americans still gather every month to discuss their common interests and reading experiences with fellow book club members. We revere writers for the iconic characters they create, the captivating stories they tell, for the ways they surprise or charm us with words, and somehow we feel an immediate kinship with others who have been similarly moved. Our guest today is Anne Rowland, a professor of English literature at the University of Kansas. This year as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Anne is working on a new book which examines this phenomenon through the lens of a small group of Bostonian book lovers at the turn of the 20th century a group whose lifelong passion for the English poet John Keats reveals a great deal about the ways that literature continues to unite readers across our many differences. So welcome, Anne. Thank you. So we've heard a lot about Knights.
1: Absolutely.
0: And so I, I, I want us to talk a bit about the Keatsians and i uh, like you to tell us a bit about the particular Keats lovers group in Boston at the turn of the 20th century that you're studying.
1: I'd love to talk about this group. Um, They are a group of kind of a loosely assembled group of four Boston Keats enthusiasts. We would really call them super fans today um, to kind of point out some of the similarities um, between what they were doing then and what we do now. Um, But they included A couple of people who are probably known to our listeners um, Amy Lowell, modernist poet, Boston Brahmin. She used her family fortune to amass a really significant collection of Keats manuscripts, um, first editions, a collection which she gave to Harvard when she died and set them on the course of. Having Harvard, the Harvard Library now has the largest collection of Keats uh, materials in the world. Another Keats fan in this group is Fred Holland Day. He is known today mostly to art historians and photography specialists um, as an important early art photographer, a pictorialist. At the time, he was Alfred Stieglitz's only rival for leadership of the American photography scene. Um, and he also was an avid Keats lover and followed that love of Keats into his photography. Um, and then two very much more obscure people, um, Louise Gwinney, a kind of a scrappy career woman, single, uh, freelance writer, poet, essayist. Um, she worked with uh, Fred Holland Day. And together, they um, raised money and dedicated a memorial to Keats in England. And then finally, the most obscure of all, and one of my favorites, Lewis Arthur Holman, who was a print shop owner and over the course of 30 years worked on finding an image For every person, place, or thing mentioned in a Keats poem or letter. And you have to think about doing that before the internet. He sent thousands of letters. He cut up all sorts of magazines and journals. And he assembled these on plates that he designed and labeled. You kind of have to imagine a scrapbook kind of burst free of its covers. So four people, they were loosely affiliated and knew each other, sometimes as rivals, sometimes as collaborators, and a variety of kind of quirky projects that have largely been lost to history um, because they're Uh, readerly projects um, rather than necessarily always writerly projects.
0: So what about these four people, with all their peculiarities uh, and differences, what about them and their their passion for Keats, what does that tell us about how people read at the turn of the 20th century?
1: Well, in some ways, your introduction is the best lead-in to this because you're emphasizing the ways in which reading and literary reading in particular is a social thing. It was tremendously social for them. And that right there is, I think, an important thing to just notice and keep in our minds, because I think when we tend to look back nostalgically or historically to past reading. We imagine, you know, the kind of silent, solitary reader with a book with no pictures, no sound effects, you know, the very opposite of what we have today. And that was not at all the case for these four or for Keats himself. Um, They used their reading and their love of Keats to form social relationships, create literary book club kind of things to throw literary-themed dinner parties, including costumes and pageantry. They went on trips to to visit key Keats sites, you know, the kind of trying to move into a physical space. Um, So their reading was social. It was also very much embodied. It was very much a matter of feeling, emotion, affect, and the kind of imaginative work that... The very best literature can do.
0: So you mentioned Keats's own reading. Describe a little bit about Keats's own reading life and how it was uh, both similar to and different from his Boston readers at the turn of the 20th century.
1: In many ways, very different. And you, you never want to gloss over the kinds of historical differences. But I have been struck repeatedly by the kinds of continuities that I'm finding. So Keats is reading and writing at the beginning of the 19th century in England. This is, you know, not the beginning of print culture, but closer to the beginning of it. And again, we're very aware that Keats was a very social writer. He would be with his friends and they would have a contest on who can write a sonnet on this topic and who can do it fast enough and who comes up with the best sonnet. But he wrote a lot of his poetry about reading and he writes a lot of letters about reading with friends. And like the Boston readers and like readers today, even when he was alone in reading, he often described that as being in the company of whatever author he was reading. So even a a solitary experience of reading becomes social in that way, if it's imagined as being in the company of someone else. Mm
0: -hmm. So this group is, is really kind of reconstructing Keats's work and Keats's life through commemoration, through collection, they're creating a kind of cultural biography through their own lenses. And I'm particularly interested in, in, as you mentioned, Amy Lowell's, who is a well-known poet, is fascinated with Keats. There's a kind of a fandom going on here. So how is her own work transformed by these experiences of reading Keats?
1: One of the things for all of these Keats readers, but I think most particularly for Amy Lowell and also Fred Holland Day, was Keats, he he writes a very, it's often called a material poetry. It's very sensual. He has lots of deeply rich, um, sensual imagery. By sensual, I mean drawing on all five of the bodily senses. And that became very important to Amy Lowell in particular in her poetry, but also something that was controversial, meant that her poetry was not often as well-received as it might have been.
0: So a lot of your project talks about reading not simply as a cognitive experience, but also as, as an emotional practice. Yes. The blending of the cognitive and the emotional to create social meaning.
1: Any history of reading runs up against an immediate challenge, which is that so much of what we do when we're reading is... Internal and imaginative, and leaves no record. Readers don't leave, some leave marks in books, but it can be very hard to reconstruct an internal and emotional kind of practice of reading. You have to go to a more expanded sense of what reading can be, the the variety of what you might call repertoires that reading includes, um, where you do see then people acting on and recording the emotions that they felt while reading and trying to extend that experience, whether that's through travel or through collection or through other art forms. So if you take someone like Fred Day, often the narrative of his life is described as a kind of an early bookish engagement with Keats, um, where he's collecting Keats things. But then when he discovers photography, he goes, usually the assumption is that he kind of turns his back on Keats or lets that earlier interest go and then begins taking photographs. I think, in fact, his photographs show engagement with Keats all the way through. And what you have to then tease out in those is what you might call more of an emotional archive, how he... On the one hand, used Keats. He became a he was Oscar Wilde's American publisher for for a period, and was friends with Oscar Wilde. And it's very clear that they established their relationship through Keats, through the figure of Keats, through talking about Keats and trading Keats uh, stories and things that kind of the way in which Keats functioned for him to kind of form that relationship, articulate an identity that otherwise he hadn't articulated yet, and the way that then helps him, I believe, to turn to certain kinds of modes of photography. It's not a study of influence or it's not Keats' reception either. It's basically uncovering... A set of emotions and identity formations for for day that Keats made possible. And then that opened up this other work.
0: So we're moving from print to photography, and there's a kind of transhistorical sense about your project, and and you're projecting also into our current times in terms of the reading experience. So what does understanding a group of Keatsians at the turn of the twentieth century, reveal about 21st century reading practices?
1: As I've read about what they did with Keats and what their, the varieties of their engagement with Keats, what I've learned about our own moment has been that literary reading Uh, has always involved some sort of visual illustrative element. So we we hear a lot these days that we are kind of turning our back on the word and turning to a kind of a more visual culture, the way that the web continually puts word and image together and often replaces words with images as we turn to emojis and texts and all of these kinds of things. I found myself rethinking this current moment because of what they're doing. That same work of visualizing, taking words, connecting them to images. Yes, the technology has changed. There are a lot of differences between a print analog media culture and what we have now. But the persistent yoking of word and image existed with Keats, with these Boston readers, and that so that's been one kind of through line for me that I've I've seen.
0: And your conclusion is that reading's still good, even in, during our digital age.
1: It absolutely is good, and I I think that if you read public media now, you we have the sense I think that we are in the midst of a reading crisis. The attention spans are down people are reading less, are reading fewer books. I'm not sure that that is true. And, you know, I would just remind everyone that we are actually reading more than ever. We don't recognize what we do on our phones and on our computers as reading. And we have created, I think, a nostalgic false image of reading as that kind of solitary, no images, no sound effects, just myself and a book and a And I think that's a false image, and if we have that kind of impoverished version of what we think reading is, well, then we end up feeling like we have an impoverished reading environment today, and I don't think that is the case, in fact.
0: Why this project? What what personally drove you to this project? What passion launched you into wanting to write about uh, a group of Keatsians at the turn of the 20th century?
1: I was working on this project and actually found myself kind of flagging, kind of losing my religion, dealing with Internet overload, distraction, and and really finding myself looking at the energies and enthusiasms of these four readers and thinking... Where where is that in me kind of thing? And a lot of that was from reading what we read in the media about turning away from literature and, and feeling like, are the humanities really in crisis? And am I not only losing my own personal love of this, but am I losing my relevance to this larger culture that apparently is no longer reading? So... The research that I was doing became very personal in a certain kind of way, a way to recover my sense of... Uh, love of literary reading, kind of ground myself back in what had brought me to it in the first place, but also sent me out and forced me to think about what reading is in new ways so that I could see it more and have more faith, actually, in the kinds of creative energies of readers that are certainly out there.
0: What do you hope those who read your book will take away What's the importance of this project?
1: I'd say two things. One is that readers and the creative work of reading I think deserves a greater focus or a greater acknowledgement in the sorts of histories of culture that we write. We tend to focus on writers, on radical innovation, on productivity, And we often think of readers and reception as kind of passive, secondary, belated. I think that literary reading, the kinds of social work of readers and the creative energies of fans and fan cultures, that is part of the richness and the creativity of our cultural world at any given moment. And I would like readers and my listeners to feel like they are actively participating in culture, whether they're writing or creating or reading. So that would be one thing. The other thing I would want as a takeaway from this is just a more optimistic sense of The creative energies of our culture. Um, Whatever the technological changes are, whatever the media might be, I think that literary reading will survive and will thrive. I think it's uh, not in crisis at all.
0: Thank you, Anne Rowland. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.